Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mrs. D's Storytime. We are reading Patricia Sanjin Tells Her Own Story by Patricia Sanjin with permission of Ten of Those Publishing Company. And we are on Chapter 5, Wartime Experiences. My world caved in one night when I rushed into the kitchen at 11.58 and saw a black cat streaking out the window with purple python's chicken leg in its mouth. Food was severely rationed. And even if I gave her mine, it would have to be cooked. Whatever shall I do, I will. Leave it to me, Duck, said the VAD. Just go and see what that chap wants and come back here. I answered the call and came hurrying back. The tray was ready with cold meat and its salad, tastefully arranged. I picked it up and charged for the hut opposite. Wherever did you get that from? I asked gratefully on my return. From the pig bucket, Ducks replied the VAD. And it's all the old cat deserves. And so I let her sleep. I loved that ward and seldom wanted to be out of it. I had just heard that the only man I ever wanted to marry had just been killed in Crete. There had been other possibilities, but my ideal of manhood was a high one. Farham, in my mind, stood on a shining pedestal, and somehow in my eyes all but that one had fallen short. In none other, save in that one, I had ever since quite the same simple compassionate integrity and cleanness of life. But some of those casualties had worse troubles than I had. There were those still young and strong, facing the future minus an arm or a leg with an amazing courage and humor. Others had come home wounded to find another man installed in their place, and sometimes that outward courage crumbled in the small hours of the night. In a very real way, their wounds healed mine. Letters from hospitals preserved by my mother bring back many memories, some funny, some sad or joyful. I am reminded of Porter who lost his leg in a bomb raid. He got his crutches today and is leaping around the ward making vulgar jokes about everything you don't joke about in a hospital, but so brave and funny. You should have seen him lying on his bed, waving his stump in the air and singing at the top of his voice, Half a leg, half a leg, half a leg onward. The air raid casualties amazed me with their resilience and resourcefulness. There was Smith with his plans for the future. I was sitting by a man's bed, specialing the other night. There was a very little room between the bed and the army huts, and if you're sitting on the locker, you were almost touching the next bed. I was just separated by a screen from an old cellar, and suddenly something breathed one inch from my ear, and a voice whispered, Er, me a little darling? I nearly jumped out of my skin, but recovered. We whispered sweet nothings through the hole in the screen, and when he told me all about the raid, I said, Where are you going to live when you leave here? Smith, in the Anderson shelter with my mom. Me, can't you get a room anywhere? Smith, Tain't no good. Can't live away from my mom. Me, wouldn't she go with you? Smith, won't leave the rabbits. So me and our mom won't stop at the Anderson village along the, along of them. There was a Bing whose arm had been blown off in the blitz. I wash that he can't wash himself every morning and he sits up and roars directions. Scrub me stump. Don't you air go making me jump. I'll slap your farce and you'll, you'll think as a, an old elephant has kicked you. Yo-ho. Their attitude to raids was, on the whole, philosophic. A letter told, I read, of one summer night when a German plane full of bombs crashed quite close. The noise was simply terrific and all the women woke up. 
in, I went trotting around to see if anyone was considering having hysterics and then went to fetch the beds in from the garden. The first patient I came to turned on me with a genuine disappointment and indignation and wailed out, What, ain't you coming? Tear fetch me in just when the fun's a-starting? Another favorite was a little cockney fellow who was desperately ill. He lies in bed with a drip feed, and I crept round his bed, dusting very softly. He suddenly opens his eyes and bellows out in a voice that can be heard all around the ward. Winkles and oysters, that's all I like for me tea. Ain't a dozen oysters a day before I came in here. But he hates being disturbed, and when I take his temperature, he roars out. I shall tell me wife of you when you come Sunday and, and advise you idle. My wife, she's 21, 22 stones, and she starts tasting you over them beds. You won't stand a chance. It was all the sadder when the brave voice sank to a whisper and the fight to be cheerful was over. So many died of an indirect result of the bombing and blasting. Yet there was also the joy of unexpected healing. I shall never forget Reggie, age 12. I was suddenly told to drop all the other night and go to another ward to special a boy who was dying of meningitis. He was absolutely worn out, cried, in a weak, hopeless sort of way when they shoved, shoved needles into him. He soon became delirious and then sank into a coma. The staff nurse tried to rouse him to take his medicine, but he just moaned and sank back into coma. The doctor more or less said he was dying and his pulse went down to 42 with pauses when there was no pulse at all. Then he began to get cold and I felt sure it was the end. When I went on applying heat and praying and praying and I thought of Jairus' daughter, 12 years old, staff nurse came and said I must try to rouse him and get him to drink. So I tried for about seven minutes but it seemed as though he was too far gone. And then suddenly a sort of miracle happened. Most of the night his eyes had rolled right back and quite glazed, and just then a sort of light dawned on them, and he smiled and drank his milk. It was just morning, and they had drawn the blackout, and all the sweet air and early morning light was stilling in. It was just as the Bible story described it, and the spirit of the child came again to him. He was a bit worried by the saline apparatus at the bottom of his bed, so I talked a bit and said something about getting better and, and going up to Hydron Fall to see the squirrels. And he said in a very weak voice, I've got a book all about birds and flowers and animals, and I collect bird eggs, and I only take one when there's more than four. So in order to keep him quiet, I talked while the ward raged without. It was rush hour. I sat behind the curtains, and we talked about all the nests we'd ever found, and his pulse grew stronger, and he asked for a cup of tea. Sister thinks there's no doubt he will recover, but I suppose I shall see him again. Mustn't it be wonderful to be a private nurse and see a patient all the way through? So time flew, and I was working in the theaters at Chelsea when the Peace in Europe was announced on the radio. We were sent off early, and a group of us tore to the station and caught a train to Waterloo. We pushed our way through the cheering crowds to Buckingham Palace, and by amazing feat of determination, two of us climbed onto the backs of the lions on the Victoria and the Albert Monument and cheered ourselves hoarse as the royal family made its last appearance on the day of the balcony of Buckingham Palace. Then, by common consent, we were almost carried by the crowd to Downing Street, where we just happened to collide with a car driven slowly through the cheering multitude with Mr. Churchill sitting cross-legged on the roof, smoking a cigar. And for me came the unsurpassed thrill of running beside, actually touching the hem of his trousers. The last burst of praise to God that day in Westminster Abbey and the last late train to Chersney. 
The war in Europe was over and the boys were coming home. It was a wonderful era in which to be young and alive. Our training time drew to a close and I received my coveted Nightingale badge. I acknowledged with wonder and thanksgiving that God had been abundantly able and I had been right to believe. Several ways were open to me, but my beloved granny was rapidly growing frailer and I longed to be near her. Rightly or wrongly, I had never been sure which, I decided to go home and work for a time as a private nurse with a local, local GP. A little later, I became a house mother to the 30 youngest boarders at my aunt's school. When Granny developed pneumonia, I was able to nurse her on the premises. The children were aged 7 to 11, and I have many happy memories of those years, of supper picnics in the Bluebell Woods, of running under the hose in the back garden on a hot summer evenings, of riotous games with the four kittens, but the first winter of the winter deep of snow and the flu epidemic and several of the children became quite ill. It was a night of terrible gales when the ceilings came down in the middle of the night and the heating was cut off and the water in the pipes froze. Half the children in my care had parents abroad. Their health and welfare was a great responsibility and the verse about the angels of young children became real and precious. And there was one night when those angels positively spread out their wings and made an impassable barrier. We had been warned that there was a dangerous sex maniac loose in the town, and he had attacked one or two girls and had been and entered in a nursing home disguised as a doctor and raped a girl in her bed. He was not caught, but the weeks passed and the rumors died down, and we were forgotten until one night at 10 p.m. when I was sitting in the house room next to, to the front door waiting for Ruth, my assistant, to come back from meeting at the high big school. She was due any moment. I heard the door open and called to her. Instead of a reply, I heard footsteps going upstairs. She'll be down in a minute, I thought, and went to put the kettle on. While I was in the kitchen, I heard footsteps descending, and then to my surprise, I heard the front door close. A moment later, Ruth arrived. Where are you going in and out, I asked. I'm not, she replied. I only just arrived. Next morning, we were bombarded by questions from children, interested but not alarmed. Who is that man who came and stood by our beds and looked at us all in turns, they asked. I thought it was Dr. McLean, said one. During the epidemic, our doctor often came to see a child late at night. I thought it was Farham, said another. Farham was popular and a frequent visitor. He had big feet, remarked a third, pointing to enormous muddy footprints on the beige carpet. No one seemed scared, and they quickly forgot until about ten days later. One night, when the door was firmly locked, a group of children came calling to the top of the stairs. A man's climbing the creeper, they said. He's coming in our window. Ruth and I ran out, and the man jumped to the ground and made off, but we pursued and caught him, and a passerby phoned the police. He was a half-witted lad. Apart from pleading for mercy, he offered little resistance. He quietly confessed to the other crimes and was imprisoned. But who had restrained him as he'd stood looking down on those drowsy children in the dark? Who had guarded him that night only from harm but from fear? Their angels do always behold the face of my Father in heaven. It was during those two years that I started to write. There was no cheap flights and easy furloughs in those days, and most of the children I was looking after had said goodbye to their parents for four years. They were happy during the day, but I often found them homesick and crying at night. I wanted to make bedtime very happy, so in the winter term I would light a fire and the children would come down in their dressing gowns, clasping their teddies and relax on the carpet. Ruth would serve cocoa and biscuits, and I would read aloud to them. But what to read? 
I long for something comforting and reassuring, but there seemed to be nothing of that kind of any literary merit. Books with Christian messages for children still dealt mostly with slums and dying orphans who made beautiful death speeches with which seemed anything but cheerful, so I decided to write one myself, and I studied the possible ingredients. These children lacked a mother. They needed to belong and to feel special. For however much you may love 30 children, the thing they cannot easily do is to make one feel loved and special above all the others. But what was more special than the lost sheep? The shepherd left the 99 and went after one. Marville was a sheep country, so I set the story in our own fields and woods and hills, and the characters were two children whose parents were abroad. Night after night, I worked on Tanglewood's secret, reliving those days when Farnham and I roamed the Calais Mount woods, and I often had one idea of writing it, to read it to those children round the fire at night. But Hazel was home just then, and her ideas had always been much wider than mine. She happened to notice a small advertisement in the Scripture Union magazine offering a prize for a 100 pounds for the best story with a Christian message by a new writer, and she gave me no peace. I objected. I could not bear the thought of my little story, so personal in so many ways, being dragged into the light of publicity. I said I could not get it finished by the closing date, but she overruled every objection. I finished up confined to my room, writing furiously, while Hazel brought me my meals on a tray. She sent it off triumphantly by the last post before the deadline, and although it was not considered worth the promised 100 pounds, it came first and they paid me 50. I was pleased, surprised, and embarrassed, but I suppose that like most books, it would soon be forgotten and I had no idea of writing another. But then the letters began to come. The first one was from her granny telling how Robin, age seven, had found the great shepherd, and then a little note from Rosemary, also seven. The letters went on coming, and it slowly dawned on me that there was something that I could do for God, and the thought thrilled me. Because I had always been such an ordinary sort of girl, I had never really excelled in anything except swimming and high jump. I needed a theme. My first book had been born out of my children's obvious need for security. But what next? The world was settling down after the war, but all the atrocities came to light, and there was so much anger and hatred. I remembered the boys coming back from the war to the wives who had proven unfaithful. I remembered the faces of those who had seen the first photographic exhibitions of the horrors of Blason and the state of the bombed cities of Europe, the resentment of those who could not forgive others, the remorse of those who could not forgive themselves. And I knew that this generation of children needed above all things, to learn the meaning of forgiveness. I went back in memory to the year we'd spent in Switzerland. My little friend, Annette, Danny, the charming five-year-old who had broken his leg, my adorned white kitten, and all the drama of cows and and seasons and school days, and I started to write Treasures of Snow. But I had accidentally left the half-finished manuscript in a public phone booth, and when I went back to search for it, it had gone. I was unduly upset. I had reached the point in the story, probably well known to all authors, when one wonders if what one is writing is really worth it. And anyhow, hadn't it all been said before? I decided that I was probably not meant to be a writer and turned my attention to other things. But my mother was quite upset and started to pray about it. And not long after that, the manuscript was returned to me. Tomorrow we'll be reading Chapter 6, Arrival in Tangier. 
I love you. I'm praying for you, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.